Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Lent seems to be everybody's favorite season to hate. Uh, It's just really hard for Lent to get much good press. Uh, Lent uh, brings us face to face with a lot of things we'd rather not deal with, quite honestly. Uh, We're going to uh, have ashes imposed upon us this evening, reminding us that we are mortal, that we're going to die. Who wants to be faced with that? Uh, Who wants to face death in that way? Uh, Lent is all about denying self, learning to deny the self and overcome temptation and carry our crosses, none of which are really popular things to talk about. And Lent is especially known as the season of repentance. Now, I would say you can't really have a season of repentance because for the Christian, it's you know, repentance is always in season. We ought to always be repenting. It's always time to repent. Uh, I think of Martin Luther, the first of his 95 theses that sparked the Reformation. The first of the theses uh, reads this way. When our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. There's Martin Luther saying all of life is repentance. For the Christian, that's true. And this is because repentance leads to life. Repentance is connected to God's salvation. We cannot be saved without it. To be a Christian is to be a repenter. Believers are also repenters. But repentance, like these other Lenten themes, is not particularly popular today. It's not a popular topic to bring up. In fact, I was kind of poking around uh, on the web this week looking for sermons on repentance to uh, think about what I might say uh, tonight, And there really were not a lot of sermons on repentance. It was rather hard to find. The church doesn't seem to talk about repentance a whole lot. Certainly not as much uh, as Scripture does, or not as regularly as Scripture does. And this is probably because talking about repentance can make people feel bad. Because repentance is linked to guilt. But the thing is, guilt feelings don't go away just because we stop talking about repentance. And indeed, in reality, the only way to make those guilt feelings go away is to talk about repentance. It is to call people to repentance. It is to practice repentance. But again, I think we have a problem here. And part of the problem, at least, is that we don't really clearly understand what repentance is. Let me give you the definition from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I think is a helpful definition. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And that's kind of complicated language. Can you believe that kindergartners used to memorize that a few centuries ago? Uh, It's kind of hard for us to take it all in. But... We need to understand repentance is this whole package. It's a saving grace. That is, it's a gift God gives to us. It's something we do, but it's worked in us by God. And repentance is is when a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, recognizing how 
ugly his sin is, how sinful his sin is, how heinous his sin is, and also apprehending the mercy of God in Christ, recognizing that God is a merciful God to those who repent, that he forgives those who repent. Then the sinner, turning from his sin, purposes and endeavors to obey in new ways. That's repentance. Let me unpack this a little bit further. Uh, how, what, what, is it, what, what, what does it mean to talk about repentance? What does it mean to repent of our sins? When we talk about repentance, what are we getting at? Uh, and how can we clear away some misconceptions of what repentance is? Repentance is sometimes thought of as self-condemnation. It's sort of a form of self-hatred. And again, you can see why this would not be popular, and some might even say it's unhealthy, but I don't think that's the best way to understand what repentance is. Repentance doesn't mean you hate yourself, it means you hate your sin. We all have things about ourselves we hate, that we wish we could change. Okay, Those things about us that we don't like, that are sinful, that are displeasing to God, we're supposed to hate those things. We're supposed to turn from those things. Hatred of sin is a virtue. Hatred of self is vanity. It's not about hating yourself. It's about hating your sin. Repentance doesn't mean you hate yourself. It means you hate your sin. Repentance doesn't mean looking within. It's not simply an introspective activity. It means looking without, looking to Christ. Again, embracing God's mercy offered to us in Christ. Repentance certainly means acknowledging our guilt, but it doesn't mean wallowing in our guilt or groveling in our guilt. Repentance does not mean trying to pay for my sins myself. Rather, it means I recognize that Jesus has already paid for my sins, and so I turn to him and embrace the forgiveness he offers. Repentance is not a self-improvement project. It doesn't mean I'm going to go out and try harder to make myself better. No, repentance is learning to cling to the powerful and transformative grace of the gospel. It is, you could say, a God improvement project. God making us better. God renewing us and transforming us. Repentance is admitting God was right all along. That I should have done things God's way from the beginning. And repentance means I want God to not only forgive me, but to change me. I want to be changed. Repentance means soberly admitting what I deserve. But repentance also means rejoicing in the mercy of God that spares me from getting what I deserve. Repentance is like an antiseptic you pour onto an open wound. It hurts and it stings, but it heals. And if you don't pour that antiseptic on, of repentance onto your wound, it's just going to get worse. It's going to get infected and will ultimately kill you. Repentance is what David talks about in Psalm 51 when he says, let the bones you have crushed Rejoice, restore me to the joy of your salvation. There is a crushing because of our sin, and yet also a reviving, a restoring. That's repentance. The grief of being crushed by an acknowledgement of our guilt before God, how we have sinned against God, having a broken and contrite spirit before God, but also embracing the joy of knowing God is merciful, that we are forgiven. Repentance says, I am a miserable sinner. I have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. And repentance hears the good news of the gospel, God's forgiveness, 
that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that God marks our iniquities no longer. Repentance says, I'm a sinner, and repentance hears the good news. Repentance turns from idols who enslave us. Repentance turns from those idols to the true God, the God who identifies himself through the prophet Isaiah as I, yes, I am he who blots out your transgressions. We turn from idols that can't forgive us. There's no no false God that you might serve is going to forgive you when you fail that God, when you let that God down as you inevitably will. But this God, the true God, is the God who identifies himself, who names himself as the God who blots out our transgressions. Or as he puts it in the prophet Micah, Micah asks this question. He says, who is a God like you who pardons iniquities, passing by the transgressions of his people? He is not angry forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will have compassion on us and tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. That's Micah 7. That's God's word to his repentant people through the prophet. Who is a God like this? There is no other God who pardons the sins of his people this way. And such beautiful language there. Picture God trampling your sins under his feet, crushing them with his feet. God casting your sins into the depths of the sea where your sins are drowned forever. They can never be dredged out of the depths of the sea. They're buried forever. They're gone for good. Repentance confesses sin. Repentance embraces the forgiveness of sin. And if you bring your sin up again after you've confessed it, you bring your sin up to God, God's going to say, what are you talking about? I don't even know what you're talking about. There is nothing between us. Whatever it is you're talking about, I have forgotten it. So stop acting like there's something between us because there isn't. Your sins have been cast into the bottom of the sea. They've been crushed under my feet. They are no more. Repentance faces squarely the bad news that I am mortal because of the curse of sin. Sin has brought death. And because I am a sinner, I am doomed to die. And indeed, I deserve hell, everlasting punishment because of my sin. But repentance also faces squarely the good news. It embraces this good news that I am delivered from my sin and delivered from death and delivered from hell. Repentance, the repentant one, knows God delights in my contrite heart. God is pleased with this broken spirit I'm offering to him. And indeed, in the words of Psalm 103, the repentant person knows God forgives me as far as the east is from the west. Think about that. As far as the east is from the west. How far is east from west? You know, it's interesting, if you go north, you eventually start going south again because you circle back around. North and south meet. But not so with east and west. You start going east, and you can just go east forever, and you're never going to touch west. you, You can go in that direction forever. Or you can go west. If you start going west, you can go west forever, and you're never going to meet east. You can just keep going and going and going in that direction. East and west never meet. They never touch. And so it is with God and your sins. They are as far apart as it is possible to be. God has separated your sins from you and God has separated himself from your sins. Your sins are no more. 
The repentant person knows this and embraces this. Repentance means acknowledging you have been in the dark and you are now seeking to walk in the light. Repentance means you have been going in the wrong direction and so you're now turning around and purposing or endeavoring, as the catechism puts it, to walk in the right direction. Imagine yourself being in a town that you don't know and you're looking for something and you're realizing you're not finding it and so you ask a a local this is where I want to go. This is the address I'm trying to find. Am I going in the right direction? And he says, no, actually you're going in the exact opposite direction. You would not just turn around. You would turn around and start walking in the other direction. And that's repentance. It's turning, but it's not just facing a new direction. It's walking in that new direction. That's repentance. Repentance means I know I am not what I should be. But by the grace of God, I am being changed and restored and remade into who I should be. Repentance acknowledges I'm God's project and God is not finished with me. God is working on me, making me into the person he wants me to be. Renewed in his image, renewed in Christ's image. Repentance is acknowledging my sin has dehumanized me. And I am now seeking to be rehumanized in Christ. I'm seeking to live the way God designed me to live, the way I really ought to live. Repentance recognizes sin has stolen my humanity. I've disfigured myself. I've damaged myself. I'm damaged goods now. But God is making me right. God is restoring me and making me whole again. Repentance means declaring war on my sin so I can be at peace with God. That's repentance. Repentance is a major theme in every part of the Bible. The Old Testament prophets continually call on the people to repent, to turn from their idolatry, to turn from their sin in order to turn towards God and towards obedience. The Old Testament prophets continually appeal to the people, sometimes describing God's anger, other times describing God's tears, but showing that they have broken God's Law and they are guilty and they deserve punishment. But if they repent, God will show them mercy. We see that again and again. In the Psalms, David often expresses his own repentance from his sin. He expresses his regret and his sorrow over what he's done. How he's got a broken heart because he knows he's broken God's heart. And so these uh, expressions of regret and, and sorrow are mixed with cries for God's mercy and a commitment to change, to walk in paths of new obedience. It's all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament's full of this teaching about repentance, but it's in the New Testament too. When John the Baptist pops up as a prophet on the scene in Israel, what does he do? He preaches a message of repentance and even gets down into the nitty-gritty details of people's lives, showing them what that repentance looks like. Of course, John's the forerunner. He's paving the way for Jesus. When Jesus, the Son of God, steps into center stage, he comes preaching, and what's his message? What are the first words out of his lips? Repent! It's the first thing Jesus says. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And again and again, in Jesus' ministry, he preaches repentance. Luke 13, we read it this evening. It's a wonderful example. Jesus gives an ultimatum. Repent or perish. That is, turn yourself towards me. Turn your loyalties towards me. Turn your heart towards me. Follow me. Become my disciple. Do things. Do life my way. Or you will perish. 
Jesus says this again and again. And at the end of Luke's Gospel, when he gives a mission to his disciples, and really to all of us, that mission includes proclaiming repentance, there's that word again, repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Our mission is to proclaim repentance from sin so that sin might be forgiven. Calling on all the nations to turn their loyalty to Christ, to pledge their loyalty to Christ. And this is what the apostles then go on to do. We continue to see this in the New Testament. After Pentecost, the apostles continue with this theme, preaching repentance. So in Acts 2, the first sermon after the Spirit is poured out, Peter proclaims to the brokenhearted Israelites, they're cut to the heart over what they've done, realizing they crucified God's Messiah. And Peter says, repent! It's the climax of his sermon. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts 26, Paul describes his whole ministry as calling on Jews and Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. That they should shift their loyalty from their false gods to the true God and walk in obedience to Him so that they would manifest their repentance in a changed life. Repentance clearly seen as a change in loyalty, committing yourself to serve and obey the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Repentance clearly described in these kinds of passages as a complete reorientation of your life, away from sin towards the true and living God. This call to repentance is all over the Scripture. You can hardly read a page of your Bible without encountering some kind of call to repent. Whether the word is used or not, it is all over the place in the Scriptures. But the New Testament also acknowledges such a thing as counterfeit repentance. Forms of repentance that are really pseudo-repentance, fake repentance, false repentance. Just as you can counterfeit money, you can counterfeit repentance. And there are two kinds of false repentance or counterfeit repentance that the New Testament identifies for us. One kind of counterfeit repentance fails to embrace God's forgiving grace. The other kind of counterfeit repentance fails to embrace God's transformative grace. Think about each of these. The first kind of counterfeit repentance is, I think, probably best illustrated in the figure of Judas. We all know the story of Judas. He's one of the twelve, chosen by Jesus, spends all this time with Jesus, but then he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He decided he loved money more than Jesus. He made money his God, his idol. And so he gave Jesus into the hands of his enemies, sealing his betrayal even with a deceitful kiss. And as soon as he had done this, Judas knew how wicked it was. And he hated what he had done. As evil as he was, as evil as he had acted, he still had a conscience. So he hated what he had done. He was despairing of himself. But instead of embracing God's mercy, which he could have done, instead he went out and he hung himself. He confessed his sins saying, I have betrayed innocent blood. But he would not hear the words of Jesus, I forgive you. He said, I betrayed innocent blood. But even those who betray innocent blood can be forgiven. But instead of embracing those words of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He hung himself. He despaired of receiving any grace. He despaired of his life. There was a sorrow 
There was a remorse. There was a regret. There was a kind of repentance, but it was a counterfeit. He saw how ugly his sin was, and that was good. He saw how heinous and wretched his sin was, but he did not see the beauty of God's grace. It's interesting, that same night that Judas betrayed Jesus, Peter, another of the twelve, also failed. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Differences there, but the bottom line is they both failed Jesus. They failed to be loyal to Jesus in his darkest hour. And just like Judas, Peter came to regret what he had done. He wept bitterly over his failure after the cock crowed and he realized what he had done, the coward he had been, even after talking big and boasting of what he would do. He wept bitterly. He had all kinds of remorse and regret. But Peter not only felt bad about what he did, he embraced the mercy offered to him. He confessed what he had done And he also embraced the mercy Christ offered to him. Jesus comes and restores him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And because Peter turns from his sin and embraces that mercy, he is able to go on to become one of the great apostolic leaders of the early church. Peter and Judas, you see, true and and, and false or, or real and counterfeit repentance illustrated there. True and false repentance or true and fake repentance both admit fault, both experience remorse, but real repentance or true repentance also believes there is a remedy that guilt has been covered in the death of Christ, that sins, any sin can be forgiven. That's one kind of false repentance, a repentance that does not see the solution in the mercy given to us in Christ Jesus. But there is another kind of false repentance, and this one may be more common in the church today. This counterfeit repentance, this form of counterfeit repentance, does not fail to see mercy, but it fails to see the need for change, or it minimizes that mercy so the mercy doesn't produce change. And I think you see this in the 2 Corinthians 7 passage that we read this evening. Paul had written to the Corinthians. He wrote them the letter of 1 Corinthians in order to rebuke the church in Corinth for a variety of failings, all kinds of things the church in Corinth had wrong. But particularly, uh, what's particularly relevant here is he rebuked them for their failure to punish or to discipline a man who was in serious sexual sin. And he says here in 2 Corinthians, his follow-up letter, he says that his rebuke produced a kind of regret in them. That when they read his letter, 1 Corinthians, they, they were grieved by it. They were grieved to realize what they had done. And in fact, they were grieved into repenting. Their remorse and their regret over what they had done led to repentance. Paul describes it as godly sorrow that produced repentance, not worldly sorrow that produces death. He writes a letter to them, rebuking them. They accept the rebuke. They're sorry about what they've done, and so they change. That's godly sorrow because it led to change. But Paul there also mentions a kind of worldly sorrow. That godly sorrow leads to salvation. This worldly sorrow leads to death. There is a worldly sorrow, a kind of worldly repentance. This would be where you are sorry for what you have done, 
but you are sorry, perhaps because you got caught. Or you're sorry, perhaps because now you've got to pay the consequences for what you've done. But this sorrow over sin does not arise from a hatred of the sin itself. And therefore, it is not a sorrow that is going to produce a changed life. And I'm sure we have all seen this. We have seen this in politicians and celebrities, and no doubt we've seen it with people in our own lives. People who, they're sorry about what they did, and then they go out and do the same thing again. They're sorry about what they did, but they don't hate what they did. They don't despise it, and therefore they don't change. It's a counterfeit repentance. Paul contrasts that with the real thing, with real repentance. He says godly grief, that is a broken and contrite heart, a heart that sorrows over the sin, not just the consequences of the sin, but the sin itself. He says that godly grief produces earnestness and fear and indignation and longing and zeal. In other words, it produces a changed life. Real repentance results in transformation. It bears fruit. Real repentance produces change. In fact, this is the best long-term test to see if anyone has really repented. Is there change? Is there transformation? There's so many people who will say they are Christians. They will they will be in church and they will they're baptized and they profess to be Christians, but they are false Christians because they are false repenters. The only kind of sorrow they have is a worldly sorrow. Don't let that be you. Make sure your sorrow is a godly sorrow, not just over the consequences or getting caught, but make sure that your sorrow stems from hating the sin, hating what you've done. Tonight, we have come to repent. We ought to be repenting every day, certainly. But tonight, we've come to repent together in a corporate kind of way. Which means we confess our sin as we've done tonight. And in confessing our sin, we have to see the ugly, despicable, detestable, abominable, heinous nature of our sin. We have to see the enormity of our sin But to really repent also means we see the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the splendor and the radiance of God's forgiving grace. We see the joy of his salvation. And it means, too, we see the beauty of obedience, the beauty and the glory of a life lived according to God's commandments, a life lived according to God's design, God's will. And we commit ourselves to walk in that way, in that path of obedience. Tonight, we come to repent. We come like Peter, broken over what we've done, but eager to be restored by God's mercy. Tonight, we come like David, with a broken and contrite spirit, the sacrifices of a broken spirit and a contrite heart, asking God to renew us, to show us His mercy and restore us to the joy of our salvation. Tonight we come like the Corinthians, full of sorrow, yet a sorrow that leads to the joy of a changed life. Tonight we come like the Ninevites of old in Jonah's day, ready to repent in dust and ashes crying out for the sure mercies of God and pledging to turn from any evil way among us. Tonight, we come to repent.
Not just to feel remorseful, but to really repent. We all feel bad about things we've done. We all feel guilty about things we've done. But what will you do with those feelings of guilt? What will you do with your guilty feelings? Just feeling bad is not enough. Everyone has regret. Everyone has guilty feelings. But will yours be godly regret or worldly regret? Will it lead to true repentance or counterfeit repentance? Will it lead to salvation or will it lead to death? Will it lead to a changed life or will it leave you with the status quo? Again, understand the call to repent is not opposed to God's love or God's grace in any kind of way. The, talking about repentance, and this may be another reason why the church is scared of it today, to, to scared to talk about this. It's not legalism. It's not lapsing back into a kind of legalism. No, talking about repentance is a way of talking about God's grace and God's mercy. Repentance is not opposed to God's mercy and God's grace. It expresses God's mercy and God's grace. When the scriptures call us to repent, when God uses someone in your life, a pastor or a parent or a teacher or a friend, and, and you, you realize that you have sinned and you are called to repentance, understand that's God's love. That is God's mercy in your life. Sometimes God's love is a tough love. It is. It is a tough love. God says, stop. And God says, turn. But it is always for our good. If a father sees his child putting a fork in a socket, he's going to yell, stop! <clears throat> because he does not want that child to get hurt. The child might wonder, why is dad yelling at me? Why is dad so impatient and harsh? Why is he yelling? Shouldn't he be more compassionate? Well, no, that's the form compassion takes in that moment. Stop. If a father sees his child running out into a busy street, he might yell, turn. And again, the child might wonder, why is dad yelling at me? Is, is dad angry at me? Is, it, it, why is he being so harsh with me? But in that very moment, yelling turn is the form that love and compassion take. It's the compassionate thing to do. When God yells stop or when God yells turn into your life, that's God's love. That's God's compassion. That's what love looks like in those situations. God's compassion and His commandments go together. But what do you do if you've already jammed the fork into the socket? What do you do if you've already run out into that busy road and gotten smashed? What if you've already made a mess of things? The reality is all of us have. We've all made a mess of things. We make a mess of things every day. What if we've already hurt ourselves by disregarding God's command? Well, then God has another word to us. It's not just turn. It's not just stop. It's another word. It's that word mercy. That word that popped up in the liturgy again and again and again tonight. That word mercy. Thomas Cranmer said it is always God's property to have mercy. Those are words you can take in any situation. Those are words you want to take to your deathbed with you. Because those are words that will sustain you. It is always God's property to have mercy. And when you have made a mess of things, when you have demonstrated what a wretch you are, God's 
forgiveness is always there for you. God says, my forgiveness is right here. It's yours. Now to grab hold of God's forgiveness, you've got to let go of your sin. To come into God's house. He's inviting us in. But we've got to turn. We've got to change direction. We've got to start moving towards Him for that to happen. But when God is calling us to repent, this is what He's doing. He's inviting us to receive forgiveness. He's inviting us to come to His table and sit down and enjoy the feast. He's he's inviting us home. He's calling us home. He's inviting us back into the joy of His salvation. The joy that Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed in one another from all eternity. That joy, a taste of that joy can be yours. You can be filled with that joy no matter what you've done. It does not matter how big the sin. You cannot out-sin God's mercy. It does not matter what you've done. God's Word to you is mercy. It's there for you in Christ. Come and get it. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that you show us mercy through your Son. Your Son is your gift to us. He is our Savior through his perfect life of obedience, his sacrificial offering on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign. He has brought in your kingdom. He has brought in a kingdom of light and a kingdom of grace and a kingdom of glory. And you call us into that kingdom. You invite us into that kingdom. But we know to enter that kingdom and to remain in that kingdom, we've got to repent. And not just once, but we've got to be repenters as a way of life. Even as we have to be believers, trusting in you, not just once, but day by day, moment by moment. Help us to live this way. Help us to trust in you and help us to repent of our sin. May we turn from all kinds of things we're doing that displease you and dehumanize us. May we stop doing all kinds of things that mar and disfigure our lives and start doing what you call us to in your word, may we embrace your mercy and may we be forgiven in your mercy and may we be transformed by your mercy. This we pray, giving you thanks. You are the God whose property is always to have mercy. So we give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ. Amen.